Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today I have a very, very special guest with me, a man whose name you may not be familiar with. So let me catch you up. Wayne Yap is a well-respected Macau nosebleed cash game crusher with over 1.4 million in tournament winnings. Wayne's also teaming up with one of my favorite human beings in the entire poker world, Nick Howard, for a podcast called Beyond Poker that aims to bridge the transition gap for poker players who are looking to exit the game. This is an especially important topic for Wayne because a few years back, he made the conscious decision to dial back his own seven-figure-per-year gig as a high-stakes poker player so that he could transition into the business world. And if there's something you're going to learn straight away about Wayne, it's that he doesn't go about things half-assed. In the past five years alone, he spent over a million dollars in courses, masterminds, and educational materials so that he could be as well prepared as he possibly could for his transition into the business world. Today in Wayne and I's conversation, you're going to learn Wayne's poker origin story, which includes a very unhappy mandatory stint in the Singapore Army and watching poker training videos on his iPod Touch, his thoughts on moving away from a zero-sum game so that he could create more value across the board, why Wayne's next big move includes buying up businesses, and much, much more. And before you dive into Wayne and I's conversation, I wanted to take a second and let you know that this interview is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com. So without any further ado, I bring to you Macau Cash Game legend and co-host of the Beyond Poker podcast, Wayne Yap. Wayne, good morning, my friend. How are you doing? Yeah, hey, Brad. Um, it's not morning over here, but yeah, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, morning. morning's relative to where you're at, right? Yeah, kind of threw me off guard a little bit. I was like, oh, good, no, I kind of play it that way. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in Singapore right now, right? So it's 10 a.m. for me and 10 p.m. for you. Uh-huh. I, uh, I wanted to start out our conversation today a little differently than I normally do. And I want to talk about your education. Could you tell me some details about the last five years of your life as related to your education? Yes. So I guess just at a point, like the one or two years before I was quitting poker, I decided that, okay, um, I wanted to learn other things apart from poker. And first I started by wanting to learn transferable skill sets. So I started learning how to network and how to talk to people and how to socialize and how to um, do a bit of sales, a bit of marketing that kind of stuff because I figured it would help me um, for the last bit of my poker career and it will also help me after I move on from poker. And so this, I, is, this is seven years ago then? And w w how did you, why did you focus on that specifically? Because, you know, 
was it just a skill set that you felt like you needed to upgrade? What was it? Oh, because when I reached a certain point in my poker career, I just realized that the people that made the most from poker, um, they're not really the best players. They're just the most connected. They know the most people. And I figured like um, there's a certain shelf life in my poker career. I didn't want to keep playing. So it made sense for me to see what the people making the most money are doing. And most of them, they go down that path and then they eventually leave poker as well, which is kind of what I want. So I kind of started there. And, and to go back, why did you think that you had a shelf life in poker? Um, because it's a zero-sum game and I was already um, doing a lot of self-discovery. I mean, I, I'm okay with it being a zero-sum game and making my first bit of money, but I didn't really want to just be playing a zero-sum game for the rest of my life. Like, I mean, poker players, like your, your listeners are going to know like the nature. If you win, somebody else loses. Whereas if you do most things, generally... Um, value is being created when there's trade going on. Like if I sell you something, I sell you an apple, you're only willing to pay me two bucks for the apple because it's worth more than two bucks to you. So like, I like that kind of dynamic where where there's a certain extra value that's being created when things change hands. So I didn't want to keep playing poker. So you're transitioning out of the game. And for those of you who don't know, and we're going to get to it in a little while, um, by poker, we mean like the nosebleed games in Macau and you know, you're, you're playing big, right? So you're earning some money. And now what did you do as this poker player transitioning out of the world of poker to start learning other, other skills? Um, so I first started by investing in a lot of companies, um, some startups, a lot of crypto, a lot of blockchain stuff, because at that point when I was living, it was like the hottest thing. Every poker player was buying into it. I kind of went on that path for a while. I went to many conferences and events to learn about crypto. Read like me and my company, we we did like twenty thousand different white papers. Like we just went through a whole bunch of stuff just to learn and try to upskill ourselves. But after a while, I just realized that um, there's just too much money chasing too few deals, and I wasn't really super passionate about it. I was kind of doing it for the money. Then I was like, okay, I'm kind of doing the same thing again, like just chasing money. So. I actually went to start doing a lot of personal development stuff. Went to the whole Tony Robbins stuff, Brandon Bouchard. Then um, just joined a lot of masterminds, high ticket events, business and, and spiritual and personal development. So it kind of, as I was doing those courses, I tried a few businesses. I tried doing some poker coaching as well. I tried, I launched a poker online course. It's kind of as practice, like as I moved on from poker, I wanted to have a bit of um, expertise in something else. And I already had poker, so I just kind of like, taught it for a while until it reached a point where I just kept iterating and trying to find something that suited me more. Um, and right now, this um, what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm really excited about. Cool. Um, to go back, I, the all the masterminds that you bought, Brendan Bouchard and Tony Robbins, are there any that stick out in your mind as being exceptionally valuable? I mean, at the time I did it, I thought Tony Robbins' Date of Destiny was really powerful. Um, it gave me a lot of my first um, insight into the spiritual world in some senses. Like, I never really believed in a higher power, so to speak. And, I mean, it took me a long time. And I, after that, like, because of that, I decided to go to India to kind of explore deeper into the meditation path. So I really liked going to India and, and those courses actually stick out the most because there's just very simple 
kind of uh, rules or heuristics that I can have in my head that, that helps me to lead a better and simpler life. So an example for this would be like, um, most suffering comes from the obsession of some sort, whether that's the obsession with yourself or it's the obsession of something usually in the past or the future. And as long as I can release that obsession, like it's, it's really hard for me to, to be suffering at a point of time. So every time I kind of feel shitty, I just kind of like look deeper into what I'm obsessing about. And just having that kind of anchor in some ways really helps me to um, become more peaceful, which I think is a prerequisite for being happy. I see why you you and Nick Howard are are friends, right? You're <laughs> um, finding your happy place, uh, exploring your spirituality after the the Tony Robbins date with destiny. Okay, so your education, we got into that, and we got into you transitioning out of poker, right? So let's kind of put a pin in that right now, and let's kind of go back to the beginning for the audience. So Wayne Yap. Can you tell me your story as to how you got involved playing cards? Well, the first time I played cards was when my brother's, one of my brother's best friends went to the US and that was the year that Chris Moneymaker won the main event. So where, where were you living at the time? I how was living in Singapore. Singapore. I was 13 years old 13. and I just played a sit and go with my brother and his friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then throughout my kind of like, like 15, 16, 17, I sometimes played with friends and only 18, I discovered that I was actually um, winning a lot more often than I was losing. And I've always kind of like topped my class in stats and math, that kind of stuff. I was always pretty good at games. So it kind of felt like, wow, like I could actually really become good at this. Then, yeah, so I graduated from junior college, which is like kind of before you go to college or university, right? And I had to serve the army. But I really was in the army just wanting to play poker. So I would sneak my iPod touch into the cam, like to watch videos and listen. Like I would, because I didn't have much money at that point, I would download a whole bunch of videos into my iPod touch from a one month subscription of like Cut Runners or Deuces Tracked. And then I would just kind of like, I can't really use the internet inside. I would see if I can sneak a few videos here and there. And then soon I got pretty good at the game, um, had some family need for money as well, which made me discover that. Like if I actually dedicate myself, it gave me the desire to dedicate myself to the craft even more to really get good, to make money. Yeah. And then after that, there was Macau and university at the same time. I was flying up and down, um, studying a lot on bio server. I actually met Nick because I bought one of his first like public packs. Just um, at that point, I was already playing high stakes, but I wasn't really using bio server so well. So what, I bought what, his stuff. Can we Can we go back a little bit and like, what was the transition from having no money in the army in Singapore? And what's the, the legal situation with poker in Singapore? Is online poker legal? At that point, it was. But I think at somewhere between when I was 21 to 24, like online poker got banned. Okay. So I had to go to Macau to play. Um, but they opened up a casino in Singapore as well, which was pretty good for a while. So I could play. How far away is that? Like, what's the commute? To Macau is like four hours flight. Four hour flight. So that's yeah. pretty that's pretty far away still. Yeah, but door to door I could do like five and a half hours from my apartment in Macau from my apartment in Singapore, just because both countries are really small. So like the airport is kind of close to the city center and the apartments. Yeah. And 
so you're starting out your poker career. You don't have much money. You realize, oh, if I dedicate myself, I can give my family money. I can solve some problems in life. How, where do you start transitioning from like, you know, the micros, the smalls to the mediums and then to the high stakes? What did that process look like? Yeah, so when I was in the army, um, I just kind of played on Futiud, on PokerStars, played on some Asian sites as well. And um, very quickly, I was making like a few thousand dollars a month already, even just playing on the weekends. So like, I never really played in micros. Um, even like, I don't know what's micros and small sticks like um, on like it, in the online PokerStars realm. Okay, I, I'll just use sticks instead, right? So... I basically reached five ten like really quickly, and I just kind of like um, started playing a bit like ten twenty in Macau and and slightly bigger fifteen thirty sort of games. So I just kind of like like won some, I lost some, you know. I made like a couple of hundred k that to my name. Maybe I lose sixty, seventy, eighty percent of it a few times. Just like kind of back and forth for a few years, um, and then eventually, um, the year before I graduated, I actually. Uh, cut my last semester into two so that I could spend more time in Macau. And because I worked so hard on my game, I just kind of started winning quite a lot. What do you and, mean by worked hard on your game? What did that look like? Um, at that point, I was using a lot of card runners EV. I was discussing a lot of poker with my friends. Like They were already playing high stakes in Macau. I was pretty fortunate to know them and to get along really well with them. And I was kind of like this math guy that would crunch out from numbers. <laughs> So if they had issues with their like game from the numbers perspective, they would ask me for help. And in return, I would kind of get to ask them for a lot of help with like the non-numbers side of the game, which is actually a lot of the game. Yeah. So that way I got to improve pretty quickly. How'd y'all meet each other? At, in Macau? Just playing playing with one another? Uh, no. Like I met that there's a few of them. Um, like one that I'm really close to. I met him when um through another Singapore friend that was playing high stakes. Um, so they were both playing the same stakes and then I just kinda like went for food with them and then he somehow came to Singapore and we just like went out um a few times. Then after a while we just started getting pretty close. I think we went for I went to Europe or I went to Sweden for exchange as well and I kinda went to visit him. Um so just love traveling. That's how we got close. Very nice. And so you obviously have an affinity to poker, right? You're you moved up to five ten very very quickly. What would you attribute to your success as far as scaling the stakes rapidly like that? I mean, I would spend a lot of time thinking about the game. Like I was like really obsessed with the game, um, and I'm just generally. What does it like, look like? What does it look like when you're <laughs> while you were thinking about the game? I mean, this really depends on which point of my poker career. At the point where I was really super obsessed about it, like I mean, I was in the army for five days, six days a week, and I would come out like I would basically spend the whole weekend like not really sleeping. Like my girlfriend dumped me because I just <laughs> wanted to play poker. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I was really like reading books. I was taking notes. I was like kind of really going hard on, on improving my mindset. Like At that point, I was someone that would tilt a fair bit. Um, I was pretty hot-tempered growing up. And I kind of like realized that if I wanted to get good at poker, I needed to fix this issue. And I, at that point, I kind of started seeing poker as a microcosm for the world. And like if I could master this outside of poker, I could master this in poker as well. So 
you have a lot of shitty situations in the army because um, you don't really want to be there. Nobody wants to be there. Your superiors aren't treating you so well. It's a mandatory thing, right? So yeah, I kind of use that to kind of uh, improve on my mindset as well. And in camp, I would just think about poker all the time. It's, uh, you know, that's a greatness bomb that when you improve your mindset for poker and when you work on your mindset, like life goes on outside of poker, right? You're able to deal with shittier life events in a more constructive and positive way when you've already done the work, uh, the mindset work as it relates to poker. Because, you know, really poker, poker will test you and poker will push you to the brink and to the edge way more often, way more frequently than life will. And like, you know, if, if you can deal with losing 10 buy-ins and recover and jump back in the game that same night or even the next day, well, if somebody says something shitty to you, like in a gas station, okay. Like it's not, you're not going to be as easily triggered, right? Cause you're a harder person. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, the only kind of thing I have to add there is that I kind of got a bit too obsessed with it thinking that I sort of thought that I had to be robotic in order to master my emotions. So I was, instead of kind of really feeling my emotions and, uh, and understanding it and kind of just like, like feeling it, but still letting it go, I was instead ignoring it. And to a certain point where I realized, like, as I was doing this personal development the last few years, I realized that I actually have been pushing my emotions um, deeper and deeper, which actually is kind of traumatic. So uh, um, eventually you have to do the work to, to uh, not just push it away as well. For sure. You're, you're always feeling, always feeling. And like, like Nick says, that uh, recovery is a transcendent form of performance optimization. Like it's all, about the, it's all about the feeling and the recovery process and then getting back in there, right? Um, just thinking back to, you know, you don't, you don't just have to trust Nick's word for it. Uh, Galfond was on the show a couple of weeks ago and Galfond said that really one of his superpowers is that he's, he's kind of a degen first of all. So he, he's not risk averse. Um, he does not, he did not follow proper bankroll management. And when he would have a big losing session, like his worst day where he felt the worst, he lost 400 K and his bankroll was 800 K. And he, he took three days off from poker. Like, and I just want, I just like want the audience to think about that. Like three days is what it took Galfon to recover after losing half of his bankroll, 400K in one night. Like that is, you know, that's a superpower in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't even sound that crazy to me, to be honest. Because yeah. like at the high stakes games in Macau, sometimes the game just plays so big that sometimes the game plays like 10 times bigger than what you usually play. And that's like the game that's good. And you're just like, okay, I guess I have to play. And then you go in there. I mean... I mean, I didn't lose 50% of my bankroll in one night, but like losing 50% in the course of a week is like, it's like kind of happened many times. Yeah. And yeah, you just kind of go on. Tell me about that. So tell me about, you know, you move up, you're 5'10", and then you start inching your way towards the nosebleeds, or maybe it happened very quickly. But like, what is the experience in Macau playing in these nosebleed games? Like, how, how does it go down? How do the stakes jump up like 10x to what you're used to? Could you tell me about the process? Okay, so usually the game is in like the Hong Kong, in Hong Kong dollars, which is 7.75 times to 1 USD. 
the games are playing 100, 200 uh, Hong Kong dollars, 300, 600, and then sometimes 500, 1K, but usually they skip that and go to 1K, 2K. Sometimes it goes to 2K, 5K, 5K, 10K. And generally, if you're playing the biggest game, like back then when I was climbing up mistakes, 300, 600 was the biggest game. And sometimes someone would just roll into the casino and say, hey, I want to play 2K, 5K. And you know, the, just like some... Yeah, let's convert this, by the way. So <laughs> like 300, 600 is like... Uh, 40, 80, 40, 40, 80. And then 2K, 5K is what? It's like uh, 300, 600, something like that. Yeah, okay. That's pretty big. <laughs> yeah. So they would come in and say like, hey, I want to play the sticks. And they usually... Like they usually play these sticks with their friends in China or something because there was a point where there was a lot of Chinese money, probably some clean, some not so clean, flowing to Macau. But at the poker table, you just win it. Like you don't really care whether yeah. cause it comes from the casino. So hey, I-, I can't tell you how much money that I've won that was dirty. I'm sure playing poker in the US, <laughs> you know, it happens everywhere, I would think. Yeah, but I mean, I kind of feel like I won it fair and square. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, and they come in and then now you're like, hey, there's a 2K, 5K game. Should I play that game? And then sometimes you sell some pieces. But generally, if it's a if it's a soft enough game and you want to take a shot, you probably wouldn't sell that much of a piece. So you still end up playing like a few times bigger than what you're used to. And how do you get into those games? Is it just the people who are playing at that moment when the VIP rolls up? Like how does how does access work? Yeah, so, so usually the... People playing the biggest game will have first priority to take a seat in the in the new big game. Sometimes you also have a list. Like I guess if it's 300, 600 and 2K, 5K, no one is really queuing for 2K, 5K. Because I mean, later on in poker, like everybody started queuing for like, like um, 300, 600 above or 1K, 2K and above. So it really depends on the, the timeline or, or the time, um, the specific time of when you're talking about because it kind of evolved. Yeah, they people started gaming the system and putting their name on the list for the nosebleed game that wasn't running so that if somebody jumped in, they could get in the game, right? Yeah, so basically you wake up in the morning and because they reset the list at 6 a.m., so when you wake up in the morning, whatever time it is, you just like kind of sometimes go down to the casino before you brush your teeth or anything and just put your name on the list. And then you go to the gym and whatever, and then you just hope to get a seat. Yeah, uh, they, they call you, I assume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site, kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played in what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always 
being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have seventy thousand hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. The price is $199 and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. So any crazy nights, any crazy nights playing the nosebleed games in Macau, anything memorable that sticks out to you? I mean, later on when I was playing the private games, because um, I was really kind of... um, doing more PR or like networking kind of stuff, meeting the right people. And how do the, yeah, private, games, once, how the private games work? Um, usually there would be like hosts for the private games. It's a bit like the Aria game or the Bellagio game okay. where someone will have the invite list. And um, usually if they invite pros to play, you have to sell them a piece to play in the game. Um, but it plays pretty big. So you're kind of happy to sell some piece anyway. Yeah. Like yeah. it could be like 2K, 4K, 8K, or like 5K, 10K, Hong Kong. Um, so like 250, 500, 1K, USD and bigger. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd be okay selling a piece in 250, 500, 1K, <laughs> USD. It's a pretty big game. Yeah. Um, so the crazy story that, that, that's from that is like, um, I, there was a day that I was just like winning half a million USD. Um, just like running pretty good and then I kind of lost um, that half a million in one hand uh, ended up losing a few hundred K probably like two or three hundred K that night um, and I, no- I normally don't a- ask about hands but you, uh, <laughs> we, we can talk about this hand because the audience will kill me if I don't ask about a hand where you lose 500 K <laughs> yeah I mean it's, it's it's not it's like kind of a whatever hand in some ways like um, double straddle, mandatory straddle, and someone straddles. Um, someone like loose guy raises, call. I squeeze, one guy folds, button loose guy calls, and then I've I'm holding queens. Bot comes, jack six, jack five, three. Um, the button and then call called the three bet. He called twice, so he caught a single raise and he called again. Then we squeeze out of the blind. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. So basically, I, I mean, I'm not getting all of the details correctly because it's been a few years, but in my head, it's like jack, five, three. Um, and then it goes bat, call. can't remember sizing. Um, turn comes uh, nine. It goes bat, call. River comes a deuce. And there was a flash draw on the flop that... Uh, and and it breaked. So 
Basically, I'm on the river holding queens. I definitely can't value that here. It's kind of like I sort of have to check and just sort of guess. Um, so I ended up check calling and he has five deuce. So he has like kind of second bear and just like pute twice and reverse two bear. And kind of get bombed for like a huge massive <laughs> pot. So like, million dollar pot. Million dollar pot. Dude's got five deuce. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you you would want to be in that game. Um, <laughs> so yes, that was. Uh, did you recover from that night? What was the? Um, at that point, like winning and losing a uh, two three hundred k is like a regular day thing, <laughs> Regu- right? Regular the Tuesday. Buy in is like a hundred k. So, and I didn't have all of my own actions. Well, so um, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Like, yeah, I recovered. Recovered, recovered quickly. Um, so you're playing these nosebleed, massive, massive, massive games, and that was when you started transitioning to taking courses. I believe you told me over the past five years you've paid like what is it a million dollars in yeah, close. <laughs> close to a million bucks in courses and personal development. Anything out there for the listener who is maybe also interested in personal development, but doesn't have a million dollars to plunk down on, you know, attending Brendan Bouchard and, and Tony Robbins, any wisdom you can share with them? I'd say that, um, if you're a poker player and you're thinking about transitioning out of poker and you kind of like, like you really feel like you're not going to be in poker forever. You really want to um, spend time, journaling and having a lot like kind of developing more self-awareness and reflecting a lot because like there's a lot of potential paths I've discovered that like can kind of take some of what you learn in poker and apply it to other things but generally it still matters like uh, what your innate capabilities or personality is and there are paths that suit you more than than others I think over this few years of learning and iterating in, in what I'm doing um I mean, the best thing I've discovered is that like the whole buying and selling of businesses is where there's a lot of people making pretty good money, like uh, mid eight figures and above um, doing that. And the game is a lot of negotiation, a lot of like game theory, it's a lot of um, deal making. And it's things that generally, if you're, you're playing a lot of poker, you can have like some sort of a head start in that. And... Yeah, I mean, I've discovered that in the past before, when I first left poker, I kind of had this um, mindset or like limiting belief. or I just had a belief in my head that if I bought a business for $1 million, I have to pay a $1 million for the business. And now I realize that that's not true. Like there's a lot of creative ways that you can finance it. Like if you buy a house for a $1 million, you're not really paying a $1 million for the house. You can finance it and there's just like other ways to to monetize it along the way and businesses are the same except that you have much more options than a house so there's a lot of very interesting and smart ways that people are using to do this um yeah and that's kind of the thing that i like most in this what are some examples what are some examples of clever ways folks are buying million dollar businesses um so one of the things, firstly, is like if I was trying to buy your business, for example, or I was trying to buy, um, I was trying to buy a marketing agency, which is like kind of one of the fields that I'm, I'm, I'm um, doing some acquisitions in right now. So 
first thing I would try to find out what the seller really wants. Like, why do they want to leave the company? Is it because they um, want to move on to the next phase in their life? They have some shiny object syndrome and they have multiple projects already. Or maybe they want to retire. So you kind of find out what they want, right? And then you try to give them what they want. And quite often, um, you can ask them for seller financing, which is telling them like, hey, what are you going to do with the money? And if they say, oh, they're going to invest this money, then you can tell them, oh, if you invest and you put it in investments, maybe it gives you like 5% on average. How about um, you loan me this money for 7 or 8%? And so like I'm, I'm basically buying your company from you, but maybe carving out 70 or 80% of it. It's paid over a period of five years at some interest or at no interest. That's kind of one um, very common strategy. And there's just like tons and tons more of them. Very nice. So as you have this realization that buying buying businesses is one of the more lucrative things that you can do in life and you go through these personal development courses, you're getting out of poker. Tell me about your business, the business that you started as you're, you were transitioning out of playing cards professionally. Yeah, so the first thing I started like was... Um, I sold online courses, like I sold one online poker course. I did some poker coaching because I mean, in Asia, there's not that many people that play high stakes, at least the ones that would post anything online. So I could very quickly charge um, relatively high ticket. Like I was charging like 10K for 12 hours um, of, of sessions in poker. 10K US. And, um, yeah, 10K US. Okay. So basically... That was what I did first. And then after that, I kind of was like doing a lot of personal development. I did some like life coaching stuff that didn't really work out so well. And then I did some business coaching stuff because I was learning so many business courses and going for so many events there. I started just like meeting people, um, sharing with them some strategies that I've learned from various businesses. I had some like 10, 20K a month kind of retainer projects. So that was really... I was like helping businesses to grow already. So when I realized that I was helping businesses quite a bit, but not really capturing most of the upside. Whereas if I buy um, and I grow them, it's like I get to capture most of the upside. Yeah. I just get to make a bigger difference and impact because quite often, even though they pay you, they don't really listen to you. But if you buy it, you can kind of... Um, <laughs> yeah, it do doesn't matter. You yeah, you, you get to do it all your own way. So you wanted to capture the upside... And but there's more risk in the upside, right? Like, was there? Did you have any doubts um, or thoughts on taking that risk? Yeah, um, there's ways to mitigate the risk as well. So, like for example, you can use an SPV to buy over a company, so that like if the seller really doesn't care about that, uh, SPV is a special purpose vehicle, which means like instead of buying um, poker stars or instead of buying a Party poker with with my own name. I'm using um, Winyap LLC to buy over that company. So like all of the liability goes to that company. And if I can negotiate a deal such that the liability stays in the SPV, then I can really drastically lower my downside risk. So there are a lot of potential ways that uh, because if you give the seller enough of what they want, you can sort of get a free role in in, in the, the the company. Quite often, if you can't get a like you can't get 100% of the company with no money out of your own pocket. You can sell 20, 30% of the company away um, to investors and then you can kind of take the free roll portion as well. Oh, wow. I didn't consider that. Once you have it, once you own it, you can sell it off to, 
you'd sell pieces of it off to fund. Yeah. And there's many structures around there as well. You can just bring in co-investors. You can do like a, a um like a PPM, which is basically like a more um serious way to have co-investors. Like you actually have a uh legal like in the US, you kind of need it if it's above if you bring in more than I think 10 or 15 investors, something like that. So okay, so you have your business, right? What year did you start it? And then how have things progressed and gone since then? And then what does the future look like? Wow. Um, because I, I left Poker in 2017, right? So basically, I registered a company in in start of 2018. So about two over years ago. Um, but I was just like iterating and changing so much. So like the current form of the business advisory that I'm doing has, well, it's like... June last year, so that's about one year and four months now or so. Um, and the buying of businesses and stuff, I've been only looking at acquisitions at the start of the year. So even before COVID, I was already thinking about like, if, or even before there's like a lockdown and stuff, when COVID first came, I was thinking that like this is going to affect businesses and there's just going to be uh, like business winter kind of thing. So I was kind of gearing up and and started studying how to buy businesses. That's kind of how I figured out all of this stuff that I now know. Very nice. Have, have you made any business purchases yet? Since the yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I, I bought a e-com company, basically. Um, it's a deal with a friend. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so you, you have your, your first e-commerce business, and do you have any goals? Like, what, what does the future look like for you? Um, yeah, I have plenty of goals. Like, I, I mean, I want to, like, I think the time horizon of flipping businesses is something in the range of like three to five or three to seven years or so. So probably in the three, next three to five years to do a roll up, which is to buy um, a bunch of businesses in, in similar, in, in one industry, if like, like kind of not the same niche, or sometimes they may be like different geography and combine them into one. And then you kind of get a higher multiple when it's a group because you can sell to a private equity and it's just worth more when things are um, consolidated together. And that's on top of the synergy that you can create. Um, it's just like a lot of speaking with the owners and navigating kind of tricky waters because it's not always easy to do uh, takeover when you buy a company. So that's one thing that I'm spending a lot of time on. The other thing as well is like I'm working on a podcast with Nick Howard as well. I think we've recorded seven episodes so far. Um, maybe even eight and it's just like things that we learn from poker how we apply that to real life and we want to build a community because like I mean I've been trying to get Nick on, on board with living poker for a while now Um, my take is that there's so much raw intelligence in poker people are just like on average like relatively smart in order to um, play relatively big and so many of them don't know how their skill sets are transferable out of the game so um, if we can create a bridge or path from people out of poker, then in a way we get first access to the talent, the talent pool. And our idea or, or kind of like my vision for that is building a community of people that want to live poker. Um, everybody is like high performers helping each other out. Different people have different um, natural inclinations and skills. Maybe some people might be better at uh, sourcing for deals. Some people might be better at doing due diligence. Some people might be better at operating companies. 
Maybe they are better at marketing. And then you can kind of create a pool of shared resources where everybody helps each other out. Everybody stands to gain quite a fair bit. And, and I mean, it's just like, I feel like it's making the world a lot more efficient and it make, it's good for poker as well because if you take the smart people out of poker, the people that can actually do well uh, outside of poker, then poker just has more like recreational players and it's like kind of good for the economy as well. The poker economy, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like a real win all around. And if there's anything that I know in life, it's that these guys with super high raw intelligence after... 10 years or whatever it is, everybody that I play poker with pretty much that's a professional is trying to find a way out of poker, right? They're trying to get out of poker and move into the business world or like you said, transfer their skills to another venture. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there's going to be a pretty high demand to be involved in this community straight, straight out of the gate, I would think. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what my intuition says as well, which is why me and Nick decided to kind of do this together. And I personally rate his community building skills very highly. I've been on a trip with him and his his um his coaching for profit stable. Yeah, and, me, me too. I mean, he's just a pretty good leader that, that, like, he knows how to build a community where people feel safe. And I think that's really important. Um, it's this whole, like, brotherhood thing of, like, hey, we're all in this together. And we'll get through this together. And if a bunch of us live poker and we kind of create a community, it's going to be like, you can really put a dent in a lot of, of things because the collective consciousness or the collective flow of the group is just going to be so much more powerful than any one individual here. For sure. Uh, I want to be involved. So let me know. <laughs> let me know. Let me know what I can do to help and how I can be involved because this is, uh, you know, I, I think I am your avatar here that you're speaking of and there's like just so so many folks in the poker world that like like it's a fun game and i think the the joy of poker for me for a very long time was in the learning it was this learning and self-development and the growth and like even the the mental side of it like how how do i recover more quickly how do i optimize my schedule so that i can perform at a high level day in and day out how do i not lose my mind when i you know go on a 20 buy in downswing and at some point you start getting diminishing returns for the time you're spending learning right like maybe you improve a little bit like maybe your win rate goes from 10 big blinds per 100 to like 10.2 but that's not really moving the needle uh, as as it relates to like being excited about showing up and s- investing your life force into this game day in and day out. Yeah, you reach you reach a threshold really quickly because like the zero sum game, you can't play as big as you want. Like you just can't find enough people to play the sticks that you want to play unless they are also good players. So like everybody kind of reaches this like plateau at some point in their poker career, and then you're standing on the top of that mountain looking at another higher mountain of like, hey, I could go there. But it's not like you can just go from that mountain to the other one. You sort of have to kind of start learning and going down this mountain. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, like if I could help to kind of build a bridge such that it's a smoother path, like that's kind of like what I needed a few years ago. Like I invested close to a million dollars learning stuff. I might not have needed to spend that much if, if this thing existed before. Other thing as well is that I personally, like, 
I mean, I personally have a lot of upside for for doing this as well because there's like even as I'm speaking to a few friends, like people have pledged to invest a hundred hundred plus k just for me to share with them how I'm doing this. I show them my process, look over my shoulder, and in and I kind of need money to go into deals as well because some of them are big and there's a lot of people with a lot of liquidity that um, if I help them, like there's a big win win here that can exist. Oh, for sure. Like it's. I think too that you know Fedor Holtz was on the show and he talked about um, you know synergy and one plus one equals five and how connecting two people doesn't just equal two because there's exponential growth because the progress and work that two people with a shared goal can create versus one person is just you know the impact is off the charts right so definitely when you are working with these people you're just going to grow exponentially you can't help it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I know that Fedor thinks that way. Like, I do speak to him sometimes, and like, in fact, because we were speaking about this, like, we actually organized a trip to to Bulgaria, Sofia last year. I think it was maybe August or September. Um, it's a private trip with a few other business owners. Like, I brought a couple of friends. He brought a few friends, and we just like got a really nice house by the lake and just discuss personal development, business. Like, we basically did like our own mini mastermind. If you know yeah. what a mastermind is. Uh, you can explain um, a mastermind in case there's a listener who doesn't know. Yeah, I mean, a mastermind, basically the term like, as it is used today for, for this uh, context is coined by Napoleon Hill and his whole thing was like kind of like what you said earlier of one plus one equals to five. Generally, if I give you an idea and you give me an idea, we have more than one idea each. So there's a lot of um, benefits for being in a group. And a mastermind generally... Like a good one would have, in my opinion, probably not more than 25 or 30 people because if there's too many, then it's not really, not everybody is like there to help each other anymore. It becomes like things start shifting and changing such that everybody's like, there will be people there that are there for their own benefit, um, so to speak. But in a, in a right setting, the kind of masterminds that I like, um, let's say it's 15 people in a room, and you're just sitting there sharing ideas, you're sharing, maybe you're doing a SWOT analysis, your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threat. Like you're sitting on the hot seat, you say like, okay, I'm struggling with this right now. I really don't know what to do. Maybe I have five projects going on right now. It's, it's this project A, project B, project C, and I'm feeling really overwhelmed. What would you guys do in this spot? How would you, um, how would you help my biggest issue with project D? And... In that kind of setting where people are bouncing ideas and throwing um, solutions and suggestions, and everybody's there to help each other, right? Like you start developing and growing really quickly. For sure. It's like poker coaching. You know, if I don't know how many people have had this experience, but when you're coaching somebody playing poker, right? Where you're you're sweating somebody and the decisions are so much more clear for you when you're sweating them than for the person that's battling in the arena because they, they're dealing with the pressure. They're dealing with all the different inputs. And so like you don't have to deal with the emotional baggage of being in that situation. So you can come at it with much more clarity than they might be able to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if like a mastermind is really like that. Yeah, I guess there is that element of it for sure. Like I've been in some where the person sitting there explaining his situation is like, the solution is so obvious to the rest of the whole room, but it's just like to him, he's just like, can't see it. 
and I guess because he has the whole pressure thing that you're talking about, like when you're in the hand and you have like your own childhood traumas to deal with and baggage. Uh, an even better one is, you know, when your friend is telling you about like how awful their partner is and like, or telling you about a situation and like you realize that their partner is like limiting them. And you're like, dude, like the answer is very clear, right? Like, um, but when you're involved in, you know, maybe a toxic relationship or something like that, it, it seems way more complicated to you than it would to an outside observer. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that example better as well. Let me ask you, we talked a lot about your successes, but tell me, tell me something about your struggles. I know that you're a poker player, so you have struggled. Um, could you tell me about dealing with the struggle, overcoming the pain of just the poker lifestyle? Yeah. Um, I mean, with poker, there were so many dark days where you just like go on a downswing. Um, you're just like there questioning life. Like, and, and when you are kind of newer in your poker journey, you don't really have enough experience dealing with downswings. And you don't know how to think in, in a lot of these situations. I remember just sitting up late at night. I can't sleep. I'm just like on my phone or on, on my laptop Googling like, like reading about other people that are on downswings and seeing like oh, how to end a downswing or how to tilt less and how not to be affected by it. And there were some like pretty dark nights that was like, it's just like, hey, am I really going to make it through poker? Like it's pretty difficult. I think the, there were two particularly dark periods in my life. The first was in when I was probably halfway through army. I guess I lost most of my money in maybe a month. And, and there was the period where my girlfriend like broke up, dumped me as well because I just wanted to play poker. I remember feeling like, I mean, I was just miserable in army. I remember feeling like it was worse than prison. I, I really considered like breaking my arm or, or, or leg on purpose just because my whole theory was that I'd rather be in the hospital than in prison. Like, Wow. So... How long thinking, were you in army? What's the term? Close to two years. One year and ten months. Um, yeah, it's like two years, and then if you are you meet certain requirements, you get two months off. Wow! So breaking your own arm to get out. Yeah. So that was one of the toughest uh, periods of my life, and the other one as well is like I actually dislocated and fractured my shoulder later on in on a ski trip in in um, Japan. So. Like I was playing relatively high stakes at that point, like probably about 30, 60 US or so. And I went on a trip with my friends. I dislocated and fractured my shoulder. I went back to Macau. I probably lost 30% or 40% of my bankroll. I was lying in bed at night. I couldn't sleep because my arm hurt so much. Like when I played poker, I would only be able to use one hand. Like whichever direction I rode, it's like, like it's just like so painful to sleep and you're getting bad sleep, you're losing money. It's pretty dark. Yeah, not, um, a, not a fun time. Yeah. And, and then after that, in business as well, there's like a significant amount of, of, of times where I feel like, wow, like if only I didn't leave poker at my peak, like um, it's like kind of silly walking away from a seven-figure a, a year kind of gig and um, you know, if I stuck it out for a few more years, I would have a lot more um, more bullets to do a lot of things. And sometimes it's just like, okay, I guess I'm spending, investing all of this money going for courses. I'm investing in businesses. Some of them work, some of them don't. 
but you have equity, you can't really, you don't have liquidity for that. You have your own stock portfolio and just like certain points in your business, like I'm selling my stocks, I'm selling my crypto so that I can keep the business afloat. And it gets, yeah, I mean, it's not easy to deal with because in poker, throughout my poker career, I mean, I win and I lose, but generally it's like an upward trajectory. Whereas when you leave poker and go into business, the first two years is just like, you're just like breathing from your bank account and it's not fun to feel that way. Yeah, not fun to feel like a loser. Like you can't, uh, <laughs> uh, bad variants for two years straight, right? Just straight down graph, probably not fun to deal with. Yeah, and it's more from complacency than anything else in my opinion. When I left poker, I was like, okay, I have some money. Um, I think I'm pretty smart. I think I can figure business out. I can figure things out. Like, I don't really want to start a small business and play small. So I kind of like invested um, decent, build a team, but like I really didn't know how to lead or I didn't know how to uh, manage a company. I didn't even know like what my position is in the company relative to the company I own, like whether I'm the operator in the business, whether I'm more someone that's like the visionary or I'm more of the integrator in the company or I'm more of someone on the board and I own the company. Like you kind of need to sort you don't need to, but it's like I spent a lot of money in order for me to figure these things out. Yeah. And you, you probably don't need to exactly, right? Like you didn't have to start, start at high stakes in the business world. You could have started smaller, right? And learned just as much um, over the same period of time without bleeding as much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, like I know that if I went back in time, I would do the same thing again. Like I'm kind <laughs> of, I'm pretty risk inclined um, for the most part. So yeah. Is that something that has just been with you your whole life, being risk-inclined? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not just like financial risk, like in general. Like when I was Well, I mean, younger, obviously with poker. Jump and, yeah. oh. around and... Physical risk like, too. I just kind of like risks in general. Like I like things that are a bit risky for the most part. So it kind of carried on my personality into poker as well. Yeah, it's a... I mean, as... Pat, Patrick Howard, Nick's brother, said that a lack of risk aversion in poker when you're talented is almost like a superpower in, in the poker world. Like when you can just, you know, you don't fear moving up in stakes because you don't fear the downside. And so that allows you to realize most of the your upside uh, as a poker player in your poker career. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits with taking shots because you get to play with players that are playing bigger stakes. If you do succeed, like if you take someone who's like playing relatively the same stakes all the time versus someone that's taking shots, I think if it's somebody that is like, like somebody that is going to reach high stakes will reach high stakes in a faster way if they are taking the, the shots approach. So like, yeah, I kind of think the general EV for that is higher assuming you make it. But then... The other thing is that in my mind, it's like either I make it or I don't. Like I don't want to really be playing 2-5 or 5-10 um, for the rest of my life. Like, yeah, I, I just don't. Like, it's okay for people, but it's not for me. And if you didn't make it, did you have an out? You had built up relationships. You're obviously getting into this private game. I mean, in a worst case scenario, as you're playing the nosebleeds and you go broke, could you have gotten back in action? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be 
the community is pretty strong in Macau. I had pretty close friends. Like, I mean, I could pretty easily get staked. I could pretty easily get loans if I wanted to. And I mean, I still completed my university as well. So I have a degree. Um, I, I, I could probably find a job. Like, I don't know I about, mean, I don't know about if you're going to find a job. <laughs> I don't know. How, <laughs> I don't think that's going to sit very well with you. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I could find a job, but it's going to be a temporary thing for me to be an apprentice and learn enough skills such that I can do something on my own. Um, yeah. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. Let's uh, let's go to the lightning round and don't be phased by the name of the round. It's not very not very lightningy, so we'll still take some time. But uh, when you were improving your game, like when poker was your obsession, what did your process for regularly improving look like? I was spending a lot of time watching a lot of training videos at first. Start. I was I started with reading poker books and then I kind of progressed to watching training videos and then I progressed to just um thinking very deeply about my hands, thinking very deeply about, about other poker players, um, thinking about how my strategy interacts with other people's strategy, and just sitting down and thinking a lot. When did you meet Nick? Nick coached you, right? Uh, a while ago? I met him in 20, I don't know, 15 or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say he coached me. I just kind of bought like one of his courses online. So like I watched like, you know, like a few hours of his content. Um, maybe I did like one group coaching session with him. So you yeah. bought, bought the course and that's how that relationship got started. Yeah. So I went to Vegas and then I happened to be in a group with, I think because like, he put the live game players that were playing higher stakes um, in one group. And when we all were in Vegas during the World Series, we went to meet Nick. And we sort of just got along. 
yeah, we, we got along pretty well. And I think the relationship got a lot deeper when... I think Elliot was like coaching him, like doing mindset training with him and I worked a lot with Elliot. Um, so I think through that, like we had a few other overlaps and we were kind of like, like talk to each other a little bit. Like the kind of things that I read, the books that I read, the kind of things that I like, the way I think, like exploring paradoxes, for example, that's things that he likes as well. So when we talk, it's like... What do you mean by exploring paradoxes? Like what's a paradox that you like thinking about? Okay, like just one that I was talking to a friend about yesterday um, is the whole thing about progress. Like, and I think like certain things, many things and progress is one of them that is sort of like at a certain point, it kind of becomes a paradox where where the only way to progress is when you have to release that progress because if you're always chasing for progress, then you're not really progressing. So like you always reach a certain point where... where progress like, becomes unknown. Yeah, there's, it's like kind of like you have to sort of go and not go at the same time. You have to sort of do and not do at the same time. Um, it's this whole like yin-yang, doing and not doing thing. Yeah. And it kind of exists in a lot of, a lot of places. So that's something I enjoy thinking a lot about. Progress. Yeah. This is my life too. These issues that are very complicated and related to one another and may require some sort of counterintuitive approach. Um, just seeing people get stuck in a loop just over and over and over again and not not able to get out, right? It's so easy to get stuck in a loop. It's like the reason the reason you get stuck in a loop is because like of your of your thinking. Like your best thinking is what got you here. So like if you don't question the way you think, like you kind of like can't break out of the loop by default because that's your best thinking at that point. Mm-hmm. So then how do you break out of the loop? You have new perspectives. You talk to new people. Maybe ah. you do like meditation or, or some people would explore psychedelics. Um, all of these things that give you new perspective. It really um, helps you to break out of loops. Have you experimented with psychedelics? Yeah, um, I've, I've, I have. Um, yeah. Good I guess experience. It's not something, um, yeah. Like, I mean, I went to Amsterdam and did ayahuasca, for example. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't usually talk about, about these things. Like, it's kind of like, sort of um, frowned upon in, in my part of the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they won't listen to this interview. <laughs> yeah, maybe they won't. <laughs> maybe they won't listen about the ayahuasca. You've already said, you've already said too much, though, um, <laughs> as related to that. But, like, I, I'm I'm also very curious and interested in psychedelics and exploring different perspectives. And that's why, you know, I asked the question, but uh, yeah, I just think it's interesting trying to see things from different perspectives and realizing that like the lens in which we view life is not the only lens that life can be viewed under, right? Like if you just look in your house with your pets and your animals and the birds and everything has this different life perspective and looks at things way differently than we do. So when you try something that sort of changes your perspective, like a psychedelic, you just get all, you know, your mind gets open to a whole nother way of looking at things. Yeah. I always had this kind of weird, um, thinking where I would kind of play out certain scenarios and my whole theory is that if you if humans as a species started out um, on a slightly different path then because of the feedback loops and the iteration we would end up being like really different from who we are right now 
And it's just a matter of a, a, a few different perspectives of what's important. And we could all be super different. What do you think that world would look like if we were super different? I mean, it could just be anything. Like we could, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there's infinite possibilities in, in that sense, in my opinion. We could also have uh, blown ourselves up and <laughs> reached oblivion way sooner. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like just thinking about the progress, just the last 150 years, right? Like what if we had reached this point where we're at today, a thousand years ago, where would we be at today? You know, it's like, who knows, right? It, it could be anything. Yeah, I sometimes watch Peter Diamandis stuff like uh, Abundance 360 and Singularity University. And every year he goes back and talks about like, the invention a hundred years ago. So like when you kind of like see like all of the things that were invented like um, in 1920 or in 1919 and 1918, and it's like really, really crazy to think that, wow, like the world was actually like so different then. Like, Oh, it's crazy. Just a uh, hardcore history. Uh, Dan Carlin talked about World War One and the trench warfare. And I was thinking about this just the other day. And he said something that people don't talk about is the horses, like there were just like millions of horses that died in World War One because that was how you got from point A to point B in the First World War, which was like a hundred years ago. We're still riding horses. Like it's that was the quickest way to get from like point A to point B because there was no like Hummers, right? Yeah, it's pretty easy to forget about about progress. Like I mean, just looking back 20, 30 years ago, like no internet. Like I mean, it's just like. It's like, it's just crazy. My, my wife and I, we have two kids and they're growing up in just a totally different world than the one we grew up in. Like they have a smartphone, they have iPads, they have computers, they have this massive internet, a collect, collection of human knowledge that is like just growing every single day. And like, you know, I had like a National Geographic encyclopedia with like 10 volumes and like, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I was using to learn about the world with. I mean, even like as the like we are recording this on Zoom, right? And in the last kind of six months since COVID started, like like Zoom is sort of the same. It hasn't improved that much. But the biggest difference is that like right now you can pretty much ask anybody to use Zoom and they sort of know how to use it. Six months ago, most people don't really know how to Zoom, use Zoom. You sometimes have to explain to them how it works. And this kind of like progress in everybody understanding how to use video chat, it's like it just happened in such a short time. And I think we're going to see so many more of these changes in, or like we've already seen so many more of these changes because people are innovating like crazy right now. Yesterday yeah. I was watching some music videos and stuff and now like all of the DJs, they're doing live streams and they're like kind of flying drones and they're playing on the top of the mountain or they're using like, and like green screen or like some AR, VR stuff just to perform. And yeah, I mean, it's just like accelerating progress so quickly. So it's kind of, I mean, I don't want to sound so, um, I've, I, I mean, I don't really know how to put this in a nice way, but I think it's kind of exciting times right now, personally. Why, why would people think poorly about it? you thinking it's exciting times right now? I mean, because like a large portion of the population is struggling a lot. Like, oh, the 2020. Yeah, I just completely yeah. lost track of the micro and was just like looking at the macro and just forgot like, oh yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic, obviously. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, people like us, it's easy for us to become insensitive and forget these things sometimes because like, just don't think about it anymore. Yeah, and I mean, there there are some dangers to progress too. Like, it's easy to lose your space in the world. You know, it's easy to lose your sense of self. I look to like my grandparents and that generation and like, you know, the internet is like a thing that they don't really understand and getting rid of their landline, for instance, like these are all ways in which we interact with the world. I can't remember what I was reading the other day, or maybe it was a podcast, but it was basically like, you know, a computer programmer can learn a programming language and they can program with that language for a long time. And then a new one comes around and like, they, they've been practicing this digital art where they're world-renowned expert and then it changes. And now that sense of self gets left behind and they have to adapt to the new world. And so like when progress is so instantaneous like it is today and moves so rapidly and quickly, it, it's easy to lose yourself in the middle of it. I guess it's easy to lose yourself if you're hanging on to a lot of certainty and security and you want the same, you want more of the same. I think you don't really risk that as much if you're more comfortable with uncertainty and, and just being like really truly open to uncertainty. But Wait, we're talking about easy. humans here, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not um, you not you and Fedor, not you guys and Nick. <laughs> We're talking about <laughs> all of humanity. We're like I think people are so resistant to change. Like it's so hard for people to to change from the way that they're currently operating. Yeah, I mean I'm sure I'm the same in in many ways as well. Like, I, just so I many know. stories I tell myself. I wake up the same way. I think the same thoughts when I wake up, just like things that I just can't change and I mean, it's easy for me to say, but it's like not always easy for me to do. Right. I mean, well, it, it's part of the human experience. It's just part of the way our biology, the way our bodies are constructed. Like we're resistant to change in most areas of life. And the faster that you can change and take the risk and put yourself out there, the more likely you are to grow and adapt and you know, feel more secure in this very fast-paced world that we live in. Yeah, that's my personal experience as well, which is why, um, I mean, one of the things that always like I kind of struggle with a fair bit is uh, um, like being too hard on myself. Like even with my thoughts, like, and, like, hey, I've like, I know like, for example, like I need to sleep eight or nine hours to feel awake. And sometimes I wake up and I just like don't want to get out of bed. And then I wake up and like kind of hate myself for not wanting to get out of bed. And like I know that this kind of thing exists and I just couldn't really see the solution to it because um, yeah, it's like, it's difficult to control your thoughts when you first get out of bed and that's kind of like a, a phase that I was stuck in for uh, quite a bit of time. And now I'm kind of like, it's something that's an ongoing thing that I'm working on. Um, and I was going to say, I really enjoy speaking with Nick a lot because of like he's starting to do some of this internal family systems therapy. I've been reading out on that stuff a little bit as well. And it's just like being more compassionate to, to the different parts of you. Um, and that's something that really relate. I, I really, it really resonates with me because I feel like this is something that I can clearly see as a path that would help me to make significant progress because like I'm not that compassionate to myself for the most part. Yeah, and it's this this is I totally I totally agree and I'm stealing 
you know, Nick's thoughts on compassion and hit that perspective that he's been sharing and talking with my students about it and trying to incorporate it into their process for recovering and dealing with loss as it relates to poker and just doing a better job of having a better relationship with ourself um, in the midst of our struggles. So you basically work with your students on this and how, how do you help them to become more compassionate to themselves? Well, it, 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 it starts out with creating an awareness of what's happening and having a conversation about really it's about their relationship with loss and what does loss mean to you and like people will say if you if you ask if i ask somebody why do you like to win oh i love winning i'm competitive i love winning and i'm like well why like you know most people just that's how they operate they say i love winning so that's what i want to do but they never even investigate like why do I feel this relationship with winning? And is it really the winning that I love or is it more an aversion to loss? And if it's an aversion to loss, why do I not want to feel that, right? Like why why is that a feeling that I'm trying to avoid? And so really it's just like hammering down and figuring out like, why do you have this aversion to loss? What does it mean? And is it really that powerful? And is it really something that you should be avoiding this feeling, Um of like not being worthy, worthlessness, whatever it is, feeling stupid because they lose at something. Like you're trying to win to avoid feeling that. But instead, why don't we just improve our relationship with loss and realize that like we're still safe, we're still secure, we're still loved whenever we lose. And then that helps with the recovery process kind of down the road. So that's sort of how it goes with my students. And then, you know, we touch back on it. We have future conversations and I give them homework that sometimes is kind of odd, like uh, quit a poker session right in the middle of when you're losing and just sit there and meditate on how how you feel and stuff like that. Yeah, that, that's how the process has been going for me over the last few months. Yeah, I kind of like that. It sounds like quite an efficient path, especially the exercise that you did where you let your students sit there and reflect. Um, and actually experience how they're feeling. Fedor talks about this a lot and I, I just had... My last conversation with him, we talked about like how um, we feel kind of when we play poker sometimes again now after kind of going out into the world and doing some work and just being able to understand your feelings a lot more. Like it's like you're playing poker sessions. I mean, sometimes I play like a private game with friends, like all business owners a little bit. It's not super high stakes. Um, but I can kind of like, you know, if I get bad beat, I'm just sitting there like, I can really feel my emotions now, and um, yeah, I guess I guess now I'm at a point where I don't have to quit the session and meditate to feel my emotions. But it's like just allowing myself to feel that emotions, and and yeah, I I I like that approach. I think it's pretty useful for me. I think it worked for other people as well. Appreciate it, man. It's um, we're all driven by our emotions in one way or the other, and it's just we lack the awareness to kind of see where they're driving us or how they're influencing our behavior most of the time. So the first step for me is always, you know, trying to gain awareness, trying to just figure out, like, just trying to realize like, oh shit, I'm angry. Like I I feel it starting, right? Like if you can start by gaining awareness, maybe you still blow up and maybe you're still yell at people and do some things that you feel shame or regret for later on. But the more often you gain that awareness, the more chance you give yourself of just being able to feel it without expressing it in a just a ball of rage. Mm-hmm. 
And when you keep getting the awareness of that same situation, right, you can start seeing patterns in, in, in what triggers you and you can start like kind of looking at certain things like your childhood traumas yeah. and start understanding like kind of the root of these problems as well. Exactly. You, and then once you, once you find the root of it, then you're like, oh, wow, I've been doing this my whole life because of something that happened when I was like five years old that just created a massive imprint on me and basically has been influencing my whole life up to that point, right? Yeah, and it's just like you just don't see it because like that's kind of your reality. You just, yeah, that's just the lenses that you're putting on. It's kind of crazy how, how this world works in that way. Yeah, how, just how humans, we just accept things as truth and then like never go back and question it. Like you accept that, yeah, I'm competitive. I love winning. But then like you never go back and question like, well, why, why, why do I love winning? And like, why do I hate losing? Like, why, why is this a thing, right? I told you this lightning round is not very lightning-y. This is a pretty slow, <laughs> slow moving lightning round. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, you, when you think about joy in your career playing cards, What's the first memory that comes to mind? The first time I landed in Macau, first time I landed in Vegas as well, just like being in the airport, just like looking at the casino. Like, and uh, right before I really knew that I was going to be a professional and I was like, wow, I really want to do this. Like, this is like freedom of this is what I want. And actually that's what makes me feel joy. Yeah, I can... I can feel myself feeling joy for that same moment in your career when it's an adventure and it's unknown and you don't know what's going to happen. And there's like a lot of, a lot of joy and excitement in that feeling, at least for me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because like, for example, when I won a tournament, I think it was maybe about 700k USD. Um, it wasn't actually that much joy because it was at the moment, like it felt good, but like, the next day, I just kind of like, ah, whatever. I just kind of like accepted it. And like, I didn't really allow myself to celebrate my victories while I was playing poker. Yeah. Do you wish you would have? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many things to appreciate. If I just appreciated it more, I'll probably uh, grow more as an individual quicker. It's another aspect of it too, right? When you're trying to bottle up your emotions, a lot of times you don't even give yourself permission to feel joy in the, the joyful moments of poker, right? Like you, we don't even give ourselves permission to feel joy if we like get it in and get lucky. And like this, you should be feeling joy for this situation, right? But more often we're analyzing, like, did we make a mistake? Should we have gotten it in? Did we make a bad decision? Like, ah, oh, we're so stupid. Why did we fuck up? Why, you know, like we have all, like, why'd we try to run this bluff that's low equity? Like, yeah, we got there, who cares? But I mean, like we don't allow ourselves to actual feel the joy of, winning the hand, the joy of the moment. And I think that that's another thing that can harm poker players' developments in this world. Uh-huh. Yeah, totally. I definitely didn't allow myself to feel joy when I won a big pot at the table as well because like, I was afraid like it would make other people feel bad. And I just like, you know, if I lose, I wanted to not look angry or sad. If I won, I didn't want to look happy as well. And it's not very good when you take that into real life. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, you don't have to like fist pump celebration, right? But you can breathe it in and, you know, you can just feel it without outwardly expressing that you just ruined this guy's life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just stop, pay attention a little bit and you will actually like, like the biggest moments of my life that when I was the happiest, 
I really didn't take the time to pause to 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 feel the happiness. And one of the things I realized, like after doing a lot of personal work, is that in the past I knew that doing gratitude exercises was important. And I would wake up and I, like there were periods in my life where I would do it every morning, and I would just like, kind of write things that I'm grateful for. But I was doing it as a process because I was kind of robotic. I wasn't doing it and feeling the emotions. And it's kind of like the impact is probably 10 times less if you're not really feeling the emotions. I agree. And I can say with certainty that I feel joy right now. And uh, <laughs> I'm allowing myself to feel it. These these conversations on on Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, I mean, some of the most joyful moments of my professional career, I just... I'll we'll hang up this call and you know I'll just feel great for the the, the entire rest of the day. It's like a, a shot of shot of joy and a shot of happiness for me. Um, <laughs> That's really nice to hear. It sounds like you're on the right path then. And I mean, I don't know too much about the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. Like, where do you want to take this? Where do you see this this going? Basically, I want to do this podcast as the one thing that I do on a daily basis um, or something in the realm of creativity, content creation, that is really what my passion is. And then the other stuff, the coaching, the courses, the webinars, that's more tactical and there is some creativity that's involved. Um, It's hard. And I do think there's benefit in doing things that are hard because this for me, this is easy. Like I love doing this. It's easy for me to wake up and do this with you, right? So this would be the top of the funnel type thing for me and then basically just grow my business behind the scenes with associate coaches working with them guys I trust to create things that are valuable for this audience that would be that would be my ideal mm-hmm. it sounds like you're very clear about like your your zone of genius the part that you really want to play so it's like I guess it's about um, making things much more efficient such that you can spend that time doing these things that you like like me I like doing this stocking stuff as well, like being on this podcast, doing this interview. I don't need to prepare. I can just come in and just like talk. Like it's like 11, 20 p.m. right now. And I'm just like, okay, whatever. Like it's just like, I mean, I could just be here having a beer or something. It's just like, I feel the same. I'm just like chatting and having fun. And I guess like when me and Nick, we, we, we are building this new thing together as well. Like I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, what are the things that, how do I stay in my own lane? Because when I spend time in my own lane doing the things I'm good at, it's gonna like these are the hours that actually are worth a lot more. If I'm spending the time kind of doing the back end stuff that I don't really like, I'm not really gonna do a good job. Like, what's the point? I don't really want to spend my time doing those things. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Wow. Um probably gonna have to think of this a little bit because I don't know which perspective to come from and I'm just going to vocalize my thoughts and, and just see where I go. If it was a poker player that um, is kind of mid-stakes or playing high stakes, I guess, I would probably recommend that they read, I guess, the favorite books that I've read like in the last couple of years are a lot of the Indian kind of like yogic teachings. It's a lot deeper and yeah, like I like Krishnamurti, for example. Um, Navaravikan talks a lot about Krishnamurti and uh, you can see that Naval's kind of thoughts comes a lot from, from his, um, he's very heavily influenced by Krishnamurti. That's one. The Indian school that I go to is this O&O Academy by Krishnaji and Pritaji. They have this book, Four Sacred Secrets. 
I think that might be a simpler entry point. My worry is that most poker players wouldn't be able to appreciate or resonate with that. So it's like, if you're not really appreciating it, then like, what's the point of reading it? So like, probably the book that you have to read is like kind of a book that, uh, something that would open certain doors for you. And I guess it would be more generic personal development stuff. I guess Benjamin Hardy, this uh, guy that's a medium writer, like he has a book called uh, Willpower Doesn't Work. I think I kind of like that. Yeah, it's a, or maybe even his, actually his other book, Personality Isn't Permanent. I kind of like that just because there's so many people with like fixed mindset of like I am an ENTJ. Uh, Myers Briggs, that's who I am. Um, I am a pro poker player that's that's good at the few side of the game, but I'm not so good at the math side of the game. Or I'm good at no limit hold'em tournaments, and that's the game I'm good at. And they just like kind of don't question that. Maybe they're limiting themselves in some ways. So I think the book kind of questions. It, it would it's a simple entry point for people to start questioning themselves a little bit about like where they are in their lives. And who they are, right? Like who 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 they are. Um, is this permanent? Are our insecurities or what we feel like our deficiencies? Are these things unchangeable? Are they just stuck the way that they are forever? Can we grow and find a different perspective and kind of break out of them? I think that's exceptionally beneficial for poker players specifically. Yeah, yeah. And and that reminds me of a business book that I like a lot. It's Keith Cunningham's The Road Less Stupid. And it talks a lot about thinking time. And basically in every every chapter, they lift you with thinking time questions, like somewhere between three to five journal prompts kind of questions. And you just kind of ask yourself relatively deep questions. Like you sit down there and ask yourself, um, for example, maybe what are some things that I've been doing right but not regularly. What are some things I need to cut off in my life right now? Or where is the geometric growth in my business right now? So you sit down and, and, and it's sort of like you're reading a book, but you're also asking questions. Because what I find is that it's so easy to passively consume a book. And if you don't actually um, take what you learn from the book and ask yourself questions from the book or apply anything, you take certain um context in your life and apply it to the book, right? That's when you actually can um, actually gain beneficial things from the book, right? Just reading it isn't really, it's, it's not a very good use of time. And for those of you out there, because I've fallen into this trap many, many times with reading personal development books and not being active about my learning. Like if you're reading and you have this awareness of like the end of chapter to-do list that they give you and like you can feel the aversion like when you breathe you can be like oh i could do that and then you can you breathe and you're like holy shit like there's anxiety related to doing this activity right like there's some real resistance here oftentimes working your way through that resistance is the very thing that you need to break out of the paradigm in which you're living your life right like that's that's the wall that feeling of anxiety um, that you have to work past in order to improve uh, as a human being. Mm, it's almost like the resistance is showing you the path. It's just a matter of whether you listen to it or not. Ah, that's beautiful. That's a that's a beautiful way to put it. The, the resistance is showing you the path. 
Yeah, and and oftentimes like we kind of are a little bit um, we see it as a binary thing. Either we do it all or we don't. And sometimes it's like if there's ten questions in the whole book, then that's asking, and and you feel a lot of aversion to it. Why don't you just start with doing one? Like it's a lot, um, and see how that goes. Sometimes you start doing one and you're like, hey, I kind of like this process, and you do more. Don't need to have such a high standard from the get go if you've never done it before. Right. Like you can, you know, you're not being graded. There's no no teacher giving you like an A or an F. You can go at your own pace and just see what happens, right? It's very low risk, high reward type of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how I feel about thinking or your thinking time in general. Just sitting down there with your journal, very low risk, very high reward. Because I personally think even right now, probably half of the things I do for business I'm just kind of wasting time and just like I'm doing this, I'm starting this new slide deck or I'm doing this new writing and it's just like somewhere in a half-filled file on my Dropbox or my Google Drive. And like if I spend the time thinking about how to spend my time, like there wouldn't be so many of things like just kind of, I started taking a few steps and I'm taking steps in the wrong direction. <laughs> I mean, it's trial and error, right? That's how we, how we live and, and grow and improve and become more efficient. Yeah, so now personally, I feel that it's it's a weekly kind of routine and it, and on a seven-week sprint basis, so I kind of cycle my calendar into seven weeks where I go a bit harder in seven weeks, but I take some time to reevaluate and rest in between. Like I really think that reevaluating is a major part in, in an efficient and optimized cycle that you just cannot cut out. And what does reevaluating look like? meditation it's reading books sometimes it's journaling doing a lot of thinking time like i have a whole bunch of questions that accumulated from questions i've asked myself in the past where do you accumulate um, them like how, how do you write them down so i use a trello board um, it's just an old trello board it's just all in different cuts and i just like kind of like oh add in some questions and then i i kind of like that was where i started and then i kind of moved some of them to evernote so it's kind of in two places now I'm a bit like, I, I never really bothered to consolidate them or ask a VA to consolidate them because there's just so many questions on both. I just like see what I feel like and then I just go to one of the two and just find some questions to ask myself. That's a great process. Um, getting it out of your mind and onto some place that you can refer back to it at a later date. I think this is a thing that, you know, Nick has spoken about as well, but like when you're able to do this, like we have these moments of clarity and inspiration in our day and questions that we want to answer and we just don't capture them. And then we never circle back to them because we never captured it, right? It's just gone. Mm, yeah. And and that's why I kind of keep an ideas Trello bot to start with where it's just like, oh, if I have an idea or question, I just kind of like throw it in there first. And then I was like, sometimes it's just like something really random and just like, why was I thinking about that at that point? But sometimes there's certain magic to to those ideas as well. Yep. All right, man. So just two more questions and we're going to get you out of here. You can rest your weary eyes and lay down for sleep. Um, <laughs> what's, a, <laughs> what's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? My podcast with Nick, it's, it's really near and dear to my heart because podcast has given me so much and I just like, I enjoy the strategy elements of the game of how like one range interacts with another range, how one strategy interacts with another strategy, how one person interacts with another person, how one um, 
thinking pattern interacts with another thinking pattern and and like poker is so close to my heart so like doing something that takes poker it takes i'm I'm gonna help the community with buying businesses as well this is something i'm interested in as well i have the opportunity to work with nick howard which who i just enjoy speaking to a lot and i'm sure you do as well same um, yeah. yeah i mean it's just something that's just so much to be excited about what's the name yeah. of this podcast and when does it launch it's called Beyond Poker. It is actually going to be launched middle of October. I can't remember the exact date. It'll be live when this episode goes live. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's cool. So I guess it's beyondpoker.com or you can probably find it on iTunes, Spotify. Yeah, check it out. You've heard from Nick a number of times on this podcast. Now you've heard from Wayne. And I can't wait to start listening to Beyond Poker and w- see what happens when... Wayne Yap and Nick Howard go deep. I think it's going to be super valuable for just anybody that stumbles across it. <laughs> yeah, it's like sometimes we go so deep that we kind of catch ourselves and just like, hey, let's not go too deep kind of thing. Like we oftentimes we before the episode, we're just kind of discussing a little bit like because we're also launching the podcast. So we're discussing other things about the launch. I mean, like, hey, let's not go too many layers, like too meta here. <laughs> but it kind of like ends up that way. So if that's the kind of thing that you don't like, it's probably not the podcast for you. But if you like that kind of thing, then it's probably for you. Yeah. For So for my money, just keep going deep and get as meta as you can possibly get. That's like something that I just love more than most anything in life is listening to just going super deep, right? I think that's fascinating. It piques my curiosity. It's just something I'm really interested in learning more about myself. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm super excited as well. It'll be fun. And yeah, <laughs> thanks for showing so much support for it. Like, yeah, appreciate it. An honor. It's my pleasure. And final question here. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? So my website is ugadvisory.com. And it's my website that basically it's for my advisory consulting business. And I kind of list the criteria of what kind of businesses I'm looking for when I'm buying the business. So if somebody is uh, yeah, that that's really my main thing right now. If like you want to find people to invest or buy your business, like feel free to reach out. Or maybe if you are interested in moving on from poker as well, and you kind of want to work with me and Nick and build a community. I mean, we're probably gonna set up a, a decently high paywall because like neither of us really wants to spend like like we don't want to start the community so big so quick we kind of want to create a close-knit group of people and i think having a paywall there's like a something that's like we kind of have to do it but what what kind of paywall are we talking here do you have you um, settled on a number um it depends on kind of like when like right now to work one-on-one with us it's it could be in the six-figure range, like 100K and above. It's, if it's in a mastermind group setting, it's probably going to be in the 20, 25K range. Eventually, we're probably going to do like a 5K kind of, of thing as well, just because um, we rather work with a smaller group and, and iterate our process and make sure it works first before kind of like offering it to the masses. Yeah, before scaling. Yeah, and we kind of have this kind of thing going on where neither of us like... We don't really want to spend time 
clearing the toxic energy in groups and and like when there's free stuff it's in a way like there's always going to be certain like people that you have to kick off the group and stuff when people are paying enough it's a barrier to entry yeah a barrier to entry and and when you they pay and you don't like them you just like kick them out and refund them like <laughs> it's a lot easier than than having to you're not going to get a lot of the toxic people who are willing to pay like 5k just to get through the door, right? They're more receptive to learning. They're more receptive to growth. They're more accept, more susceptible to just buying into the process um, positively and taking action and moving forward. Yeah. And it's a process that I believe in myself. Like I've invested so much of my own money joining stuff. I think like you are hyper focused and, and, and you pay more attention when you pay. So I kind of like paying for stuff. Like I, I honestly believe that I take, like if the cost is really good, it's more worth it for me to pay $10,000 for it than pay zero. Because if I paid zero for it, like it's just hard for me to really take it seriously. It's going to give me 50K of value in a free cost. Like if I paid 10K, I'd probably get 100K worth of value from it. Exactly. And it's a hard, like it's hard thing for people to kind of digest. But I can say this, like I've given away four coaching sessions in the last two months, maybe last three months. I don't do it very often. But what I've learned is I'm never giving away coaching sessions ever again because the people that I've given them away to, not one of them has booked a session and done the session, right? They didn't pay for it. You know, they signed up to enter to win, but once they want it, it's not a priority. It's not valuable to them. But if they would have paid, you know, a thousand bucks, they're going to show up, right? They're not going to, they're not going to dilly dally. They're going to put it on the schedule. They're going to be prepared and they're going to maximize their return on that investment. But like, no matter how many times you multiply something by zero, it's always zero. And that's just kind of how I, how I look at like free coaching and free stuff nowadays. Yeah, there's a place for it. And I, I mean, I, I still think it's like like giving away good quality information in a podcast for free. It's it's pretty good. Like you're giving a lot of stuff away for free. For like, sure. Yeah. So like kind of like that's more than enough for of the free stuff. Like if you want to really dive deeper, like it's like it's good for you to pay. Yeah, it's good for everybody to pay. <laughs> it's good for <laughs> the person who's spending their time and energy making the free stuff, right? Like producing these podcasts or producing the content it's good for their business it's good for you and it's good for them to you know get validation and to uh guide you on making results like it's just a a win all around when people invest money into something that they really love or a teacher that they really enjoy mm-hmm. yep all right man and beyondpoker.com check out nick and wayne's podcast It'll definitely be live by the time this episode goes up and it'll be on the show page at chasingpokergreatness.com. You can click through. Wayne, thank you very much for your time and your energy. I have very much enjoyed it this morning, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate you and and your podcast and having me on the show as well. It was really fun for me. So thanks, Brent. Awesome, man. Let's do a round two in six months. uh, We can talk about your experience in Beyond Poker and what's going on in your life at that time. Yeah, sounds good. I'll talk to you then, I guess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.